The following is a resource from the Dwark Hill Study Center. Dwark Hill exists to help Christians take every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. We hope that you enjoy this lecture. Now, where are we? Well, so far we've considered broad themes. We looked at three basic ones. And if you want, uh, I, I have uh, extra copies of the handout I gave you yesterday. So uh, at the break, you can come up and take one. Um, this was on the first of the three visions, uh, um, excuse me, uh, themes that we talked about. But the first theme that we talked about was a Trinitarian vision. That, that the book of Revelation gives you a Trinitarian vision of reality. But it does it in a really beautiful way. It weaves the Trinity into, uh, into the book and into life. So we thought about all three things. First, the sovereignty of God, the sovereignty of the Father. There he is sitting on a throne, and in front of him is a sea of glass. And we'll talk about that when we get to, Genesis, uh, to uh, Revelation 4 in a couple weeks, what the image of water means, and what's the image of the sea. And, and there before the throne is a sea of glass. But we know this, a sea of glass is calm. And so the rest of the book seems very uncalm. The rest of the book is chaos and turmoil and tumult. And yet, there on the throne is the Lord God, and in front of him is a sea of glass. And around him is not the sound of chaos, but around him is the sound of worship. True order. Then we thought about the illumination of the Spirit, that the Spirit in the book of Revelation illumines the truth. He shines like a spotlight onto the sun, so that through the sun we're able to see the Father. And then finally, we spent uh, most of our time on the third of the Trinity, that is the supremacy of the Son. That the point of the book of Revelation, don't forget, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Sometimes in your Bibles, if your Bible has a title, it'll say the revelation of John. But this is not the revelation of John. The book begins with the title, and the title is The Revelation of Jesus Christ. And if we miss that, if we don't come out of the book with a greater, grander view of Jesus Christ, if we don't come out with a greater desire and urge to worship him, then we have read the book wrong. So Christ is at the center of this book. And today, on, in our second hour, that's really what we're going to spend time on, Revelation chapter 1 and this amazing vision of uh, Jesus that we get in chapter 1. The second of the major themes was the conflict of kingdoms. Now, one thing this book is about is the clashing of kingdoms. The kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. The kingdom of God and, and the kingdom of, of Satan. Truth and lie. Heaven and hell. The trinity and the anti-trinity. You know, the beast and the lamb. The bride and the harlot. The new Jerusalem and Babylon. These, these radically separated ideas that throughout the book clash. And it forces us, this book, to make a decision. Because as we thought about, with this kind of clash and this radical distinction, it leaves no room for neutrality. And we like neutrality. We like not having to commit. You know, we want to be Christians, but we don't want it to hurt. But the book of Revelation says, nope, it doesn't work that way. It is a radical difference. It is as different as black and white, light and darkness, truth and lie. And you've got to pick. There's no neutrality, no middle ground. And because of the clashing of these kingdoms, we said it comes with really severe conflict. 
One of the things we learn in the book is that the church will suffer. And the church's calling is to suffer. The suffering of God's people is not an accident. The suffering of God's people is what we are to expect. And yet the flip side of that is Christ will judge. This book is about judgment. And Christ will judge and he will set it right. And in the end, the enemies are thrown into the lake of fire. It's pretty, pretty strong stuff. So, so the contrast is radical and the conflict is severe. That was the second theme that we, we spent some time on. And then the third one was the restoration of creation, that, that the nations are going to be converted in this book. This is a very positive book, even though it gets a bad rap. It's kind of maybe viewed as being negative. It's not negative. The nations will be converted, and this book ends with a new heavens and a new earth. This book is driving toward, and we're going to see that today when we look at the structure of the book. This book is driving towards a new creation where there's no more sea, no more tumult, no more beast, no more Satan, no more sin, no more tears, no more suffering. That's where this book's moving. This is a glorious book. This book is given to encourage us. Okay, so now we're to where we were last week when we were talking about be the genre of the book. So that's what's up there. The genre of the book. Now, when we talk about genre of literature, we're asking what kind of literature is the book? And we introduced this last week. We were kind of in the middle of this. Now, th- this, is, th- this seems uh, preliminary, but it's really important to understanding the book of Revelation, understanding any book, in fact, any piece of literature, and the Bible is literature. Because if we're going to read the Bible correctly, we've got to know what kind of book it is. And we know this. Because we would not read poetry the same way we would read historical narrative. We just know that. So when in poetry we hear that she had cheeks of rose petals, you know, we don't wonder what kind of freakish person was this, that they, their cheeks were rose petals. You know, what, what odd human being was it? No, we get it. We know exactly what the poet means when he says his che- her cheeks were rose petals. We get it. Now, if that were in a historical narrative, that would be very different. So when we learn that Tycho Brahe, the astronomer, had his nose cut off and it was replaced with a nose of gold, we don't say, oh, that's a wonderful image. I wonder what his nose... No, he actually had a nose of gold. They made a nose of gold for Tycho Brahe and put it on there. In historical narrative, we have to take it literally. In poetry, we take it figuratively. We get that. So understanding the book of Revelation and its genre is really important. Now, last week we said there's three... This book is unique in that it is three distinct genres. First, we said it's a letter. We get that in Revelation 1.4. John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. This is a letter. It's a circular letter. It would have been written on a scroll. It would have been sent. Remember, John is just off the coast of Turkey, off the coast of Asia Minor, the west coast of Turkey between Turkey and Greece. It would have been sent to Turkey. And the first city that they would have come to would be Ephesus. Ephesus was the port city. And then uh, that letter would have gone in a circular fashion. So if you're looking at the map, I'll put the map up there when we get to the letters next week. It would have come to Ephesus and then gone in a clockwise circle around uh, Asia Minor, uh, the western part of Asia Minor. It was a circular letter. And it was to be taken to these churches and read. Then it would be folded up, off to the next church, and read. And they'd go all the way around and then from there out to other churches. Now, what's the importance of this, we said? And this is really important. Because it is a letter to seven churches, we will not understand the book rightly if we interpret it in such a manner that means nothing to the original churches. It must mean something to these seven churches. Now, we're going to see it goes well beyond that. 
because the number of seven is significant uh, in, in uh, the book of Revelation. And so it tells us something more. We'll get to that in a minute. But it must mean something to these seven churches. So if all the whole book of Revelation is about the last seven years of time space, which so many people kind of just instinctively think it is, the whole book just has to do with like the last seven years right before Christ comes again, when literally all hell breaks loose and it's just craziness. And beasts are coming up out of the sea and fires from heaven and boils and locusts. Well, then it, then it means nothing to these seven churches because they're not around them. But John is writing to them to say something very particular to them. So first, it's a letter. Secondly, it's a prophecy. We get this in verse 3 of the book. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart what is written, because the time is near. So, it's a letter, but it's also a prophetic letter. John stands here in the tradition of the prophets when he writes this letter. So it's not a letter like Paul where he's just merely instructing them. It has a different flavor to it. So let's think back to the Old Testament. What, how did the prophets, what was the ministry of the prophets to the kings of their day? Well, they challenged them. Right? The prophets were bold men. And they, you did not envy a prophet. You didn't want the life of a prophet. But these guys had a calling placed upon them because they had to go say really hard words to the king himself. And their lives were going to be on the line. Right, think about Nathan coming to David, and he's got to confront him and say, David, you're the man. You know, you sinned against the Lord. And wow, he's putting his life in David's hands, but he trusts the Lord. The, the, the prophets challenged the powers of their age. And what did they say? Repent. So in some sense, the book of Revelation is going to be a call to repent. It's going to challenge the powers of the age, the powers of the culture, and call them to repent. The prophets also, when they called them to repent, then said, repent or else. Judgment is coming. I mean, go read. Just spend a little time reading the Old Testament prophets. It'll wear you out. I mean, the language of coming judgment is really intense and really severe. Sounds a lot like Revelation, right? Where enemies sound like hornets or locusts that are coming in and just going to tear you apart. They're going to be over the walls and all in your city and going to destroy you. And he's talking about the Babylonians, but he said it's going to be bad. So the, the prophets came and they said, you repent, repent, or else judgment is coming. And then finally, the prophet would promise salvation to all who do repent. So he, he challenged the powers. He would warn of coming judgment. He would promise of salvation. So the fact that this book is a prophecy, it's not just a letter, but it's a prophetic letter tells us that this book is going to call us to action. Right? That's what the, we, 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 you can't walk out of this book again, not only neutral, but you can't walk out and go, hmm, that's interesting. No, 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 no. It calls you to action. Either to steal yourself for coming persecution or to repent of your compromise with the cultures of our age. Okay, so it's a letter. It's a prophecy. And then thirdly, it is an apocalypse. And of course, this is how the book begins. Revelation 1.1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And this is where we were uh, last week. The apocalypsis of Jesus Christ. The word apocalypse means unveiling or revelation. It's an unveiling. 
So let's think for a minute, because we just introduced this last week. I want to think about what an apocalypse is and what a vision is, because that's what this is. It's a vision. It's an unveiling. It's God giving his vision of reality. So I want to think about three things a vision is not. I think three. We'll see as we go. Three things a vision is not so that we can understand what the book of Revelation is. First of all, and we said it last week, a vision is not a photograph. We we mentioned that last week. A vision is not a photograph. So when we get all this graphic symbolism in the book of Revelation, you must remember this is not John getting a photograph that he should look for in the future. So from age to age, I say, do I, do I see locusts? I don't see locusts. Okay, can't be coming in this age. You know, do I see a beast popping up out of the sea with ten heads and seven horses? No, okay. You know, that's not what a vision is. A vision is not a photograph of things to come, but a vision is the interpretation or the significance of the things that are to come. And that's, that's really important. John is giving us images to, to give us a way to understand things as they really are. He's not telling you the things. He's letting you understand the importance and the significance of things as they are. Secondly, a vision is not a code. All right? The symbols of this book are not meant to be a code. Right? The difference between code and symbol, think of a code like in the, uh, in the newspaper, the crypto quip, right? where you find out that... Uh, that, that one equals D. So every time you see one in the crypto quip, just put a D in the line above it. Every time you see a one, it just means D. And who cares about the one? We care about the D and what word it spells, you know? Or, or if we're trying to pass code and we say the eagle has landed, you know? It has nothing to do with an eagle. Just know that when I say eagle, it means this thing, right? This person has come. And so we just say that we make up a name and it's just a code. When we read the book of Revelation and all the symbol, it's not code that needs to be decoded. Symbol is more than that. Symbol is the, the idea of a symbol is not meant to be used and then thrown away. Just know when I say candlesticks, I mean church. Right? But this symbol is meant to inform the idea that it represents. So when I say candlestick... I mean church. And when I use candlestick for church, what I'm telling you is, when you think of church, you should think of church like a candlestick. Keep the symbol. The symbol matters. It's not irrelevant. The symbol is meant to tell you more about church. It's meant to tell you the way you should see church. It's not a secret code. That's not how visions work, and that's not how symbols work. So John's symbols are going to be from the Old Testament primarily. We mentioned this last week. Revelation is saturated with the Old Testament. And frankly, I think this is what's a little condemning about the book and our inability to read it because it reveals to us how little we know of the Old Testament. You know, we just see these images, they fly right by us. And we're, like I told you last week, it's like trying to talk to our Asian kids about baseball. You're using baseball... Uh, baseball terms to get my point across. To tell the kid, oh man, you hit that out of the park. And I got some kid from Beijing going, what? Or what do you, hit what out of the park? I gave you an answer to the question. You know? and then, but, but then imagine if he tried to import meaning into that. 
And he said, now he told me I hit something out of a park. So I got to envision a park. What kind of park would it be? And then what would it mean to, what, what did I hit? I must have hit something. It'd be ridiculous. No, 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 you're missing it. You got to get baseball. If you know baseball, I say you hit it out of the park. You're like, yeah. You know. Well, if you know the Old Testament and John says four horsemen run across the face of the earth, you don't go, wow, okay, four horsemen. Now, what are these, now where would these horsemen be coming? What, and, and how do I understand the horse? No, you would say, oh, I'm clicking into this vision or that vision. I, I understand. I got, I'm grounded in the Old Testament. I can see where this is coming from, and I understand the visions. Okay? So, a, a vision is not a photograph, and a vision is not a code. And then finally, a vision is, is meant, so put this one in the positive. A vision is meant to be seen. And so, when we, and imagined. So sometimes when you read the book of Revelation, just close your eyes. Right? Just let your mind's eye see it. Get the feel of the book. Because it is, you know, it's true. A picture is sometimes worth a thousand words. And sometimes Paul can tell us something in a propositional statement, but, but that's different than John giving us an image of a beast. You know, and, and just the image of a beast reveals something to us that sometimes words can't do. And so John gives us these images in some ways to jolt us, shock us, scare us, ground us in reality. So, so uh, be prepared for that. And then finally, a vision requires discernment. And, and we'll hear this in the letters to the churches. Let him who has ears to hear, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This does require discernment. You know, throughout the Bible, this is often misunderstood, but often in the Bible, images are given actually to blind people. Remember Jesus with the parables? He gave parables. And so often we think of parables as being given to make things really understandable. And yet Jesus says, no, I give parables so that people won't get it. So that the blind will not understand. But those who have ears, let them hear what I'm saying. And so we do need to come to this book prayerfully, right? We need to come engaging the Lord and and asking for ears and eyes to understand. Because at the end of the book, he's going to say, don't you dare add or subtract to or from this book. Don't you start importing all kinds of meanings in here that I'm not talking about. Right? And don't make it say less than I'm saying. Don't add or... So that, man, wow. My goodness, now all of a sudden there's threats in this book. And, we, and so it's going to require some real discernment. We, don't, we want to be careful here. We do have to have ears to hear. Which, which and, and just one last thing I want to say about this. When you talk about the book of Revelation, people, and you start saying, well, here's what I think this symbol means, and here's what I think this symbol means, people will say, oh, so you don't take the book literally. And I, get, may I just want to throw this phrase out here because so you might hear this too. And I really want to challenge that thinking. I take the book absolutely literally. But literally means I take it the way I believe it was meant to be read. How do you take poetry literally? Again, do I think her cheeks were actually rose petals? No. I take it literally because I can see the picture the, the poet is wanting me to understand. So I want to be careful with this about, oh, so, okay, so you're saying, Spanji, you don't, you don't take it literally. No, I do take it literally. I take it the way I think, and we all have to make these decisions, that John intended us to read it. Okay. This brings us to capital C, the structure of the book of Revelation. 
First question we have to ask about, now, we're, now we're, we've taught about themes, we've thought about what kind of literature it is, it's these three types of literature. Now let's try and get some framework, a structure for the book. What are we looking at when we look at the book of Revelation? And uh, I'm going to need a couple hands here. I meant to put these on tables. I need, we can hand these out. Can I get a couple? People? How about, how, how about <laughs> my trusty former students? Officer? Hey, let me have one of those actually. Oh boy, I don't, know, I don't know if I made enough. It's nice to see you all, by the way. Some new faces. It's really nice to see you guys here. We're, we're really excited to have you. As these guys are, are passing this out, the first question we have to ask is, do we view the book in a linear way? If I don't have enough, I apologize. Do we read the book like we were reading 1 Samuel? 1 Samuel is a linear narrative, right? We read it through, it's chronological. We take the chapter 1 and then we move to the events of chapter 2 and the events of chapter 3, right? We understand that when it comes to historical narrative. The question is, it, do we read Revelation that way? Is that the structure of the book? Awesome, and thank you. Anybody else need one? Okay, thanks, guys. I would argue if we read the book of Revelation in a linear way, we really get some bizarre results, okay? So I will argue we are not to read the book in a linear, chronological way. If we do, we end up with bizarre timelines. I was going to throw one up there, but Mike urged me not to do it. I don't want to mock any other views. But we end up with some crazy timelines, if we take the book in a linear way, what we end up with is Christ coming multiple times. We're going to kind of see that in the, in the handout I gave you. We end up with multiple destructions of the world. It, it, just, it just doesn't make sense. But sometimes we read it that way because we think that's the only way I know, I know to read literature. <clears throat> Instead, what, what I want to argue for and, and uh, try to persuade you of uh, tonight is um, the structure that we will call... And this is a, a structure that Hendrickson will... Um, will promote throughout his book, and he's, he's not the only one. Of course, there are many who take this position, that the pattern of the book is one of progressive parallelism. A little clumsy. Some people use the word, which is not going to make it any easier. Uh, recapitulation. Okay, does that help? All right. Um, which is a view not of linear approach through the book, but one, uh, and, and not circular, but spiral. Now, you're, you're thinking, what are, you, what are you talking about? That's right. Well, let's, let's think about it. Let's take these two terms separately. Parallelism first, and then progressive. I believe the way that we should approach the book is by seeing it as a collection of seven parallel visions. It's, it's not one thing. Now, it is one vision in some sense. But the structure of the book is really broken into seven parallel series or visions. And that these visions, all seven of them, cover the period of time from the first coming of Jesus to the second coming of Jesus. Now, at this, at this point, I don't want to lose anybody because I think many of us do... Uh, uh, kind of grow up in the faith believing that the book of Revelation is about, quote, the end times, all right? And I'm telling you, I don't think so, all right? So that's the take I'm going to take on the book. Now, it's about the end times in one sense, 
that the New Testament really refers to the end of the age as being the period that we've been in since the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That when Christ was raised from the dead, we entered into a new era. And I, I don't want to get, into all, uh, get us off in a, on a rabbit trail here, but, but the, the, in the mind of Paul and of the writers of Scripture, when Christ came and was raised from the dead, the age of the new creation actually entered into our time. Like the eschaton, the end times, came into time. So that now... There's two histories actually running parallel. I mean, you have, you have the new creation. Christ is raised from the dead, right? He, the resurrection has happened. It's a one-time event, and yet it has happened in Jesus Christ. He is raised. He is in Christ. There's a new creation. So new creation exists, and yet it doesn't, right? There's two parallel histories running. And, and the, the writers of Scripture view this period now, this unique period, where you have the new creation in Jesus Christ and yet the old order of things that's falling apart as running parallel. And this is called the end of the age. So in some sense, the book of Revelation is about the end of the age, but not like we think about it. We think about the end times in air quotes. We think about, again, like the last seven years when, when everything breaks loose. I'm arguing for seven visions within this book that all look at the same period of time. First coming to second coming but from different angles. The image, a good image to, to think of this is instant replay in a football game. Okay, in, instant replay in a football game. A touchdown from the 20-yard line, and you get all different angles of shots after the score. So they, they, they score, and now we're going to get seven relooks at the play. And one of them is going to just focus in on, on the quarterback and what he was doing back there and his footwork and how he missed that tackle and how he, you know, he looked this way, looked off the, the defenders, and then made the pass. And then, and then the next angle is going to look at, at the lineman and the blocking. And then the next angle is going to zoom out and let us see the whole play again. And then the next angle is going to look at how the receivers made the cuts and made the catch. And, and, the next, and that's what we're going to get. Okay? So that is the parallel part of the progressive uh, parallelism. Now, the sheet that I gave you is the seven sections, okay? Now, one of the reasons why I, I want to argue for this, and again, I'm, I'm not, it's not like I came up with this, okay? Um, but the, the reason why I would argue for this, and I've listed out the verses underneath there to kind of give us some sense, do you see the pattern here? These things are being looked at again and then again and then again. Let's just, let's just walk through it together. The first section is chapters 1 through 3, the introduction and letters to the churches, which we'll start today. Okay? Now, th that, that's a little bit unique, but I'm going to show how it fits uh, within this in the progressive part. The second vision, or the second section, is chapters 4 through 7, where we get the vision of heaven in chapter 4, the vision of Jesus Christ in heaven in chapter 5, and then 6 and 7 are the vision of the seven seals. In chapter 8, verse 5, which is the... the the last seal, the, la the opening of the last seal begins the, the first trumpet, okay? In, in Revelation 8, 5, we, we read these words, that fire is thrown from heaven upon the earth. The prayers of the saints are taken up in a censer. They're gathered. Fire is joined with the prayers of the saints. The fire and the prayers are thrown down to the earth to destroy the earth, all right? This is in Revelation 8, 5. And then we hear that there are peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. 
very apocalyptic language, right? Like the, the apocalyptic language, like even Matthew 24, right? The moon turns to blood, the sun falls out of the sky, stars fall out of the sky. So we get, we get that. Now, that peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and earthquake had been already used once in Revelation 4. We'll get there when we look at that sometime as what's happening around the throne of God. Now, in 8.5, we come to the end of this vision, and I would argue what we have here is an image of the final judgment. Fire being thrown down from heaven, and then these amazing apocalyptic images. Peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. The third vision is Revelation 8 to 11, that of the seven trumpets. Toward the end of this vision, we are told in 11 verse 15 that the kingdoms of the world have become the kingdom of our Lord. It's over. (laughs) No more kingdoms of this world in rebellion. At the end of this vision, in 11.15, we're not at the end of the book, we're at the end of a vision. The kingdoms of the world have become the kingdom of our Lord. In 11.16, the name for God is given the God who was, uh, who is and who was. But if you remember, the way we looked at God in our, in our visions is that he is the one who is and who was. This is Revelation 1, and we'll even talk about it after coffee. The name for God in Revelation 1 and, three, and two more times is the God who is and the God who was and the God who is to come. But then when we get to 11.16, there's no to come. He's just the God who was and the God who is. And the, answer, the reason for why is because in the vision, he has come. He has come. It's over. In 11.18, we're told, your wrath has come. Now is the time for the judging of the dead. It's time to destroy those who destroy the earth. This is end time stuff. This is the end. And then again, 11.19, flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a great hailstorm. So what we got in the last vision, this vision also ends with. We've come again full cycle, but from a different angle. We're going to learn something. There's a reason why now it's trumpets and not seals. And, and don't get thrown by that. We'll, we'll talk about it. Then the fourth vision, 12 through 14, the image of the woman and the beast. At the end of this vision, this is the kind of language we get. Uh, chapter 14, verses 15 to 16. The time to reap has come. This is the call to get out your sickle and harvest the earth. Final judgment stuff. Now the time to reap has come and the sickle was laid to the grain and the earth was harvested. And then a secondary image. One is positive, by the way, the harvesting of the wheat. And then the negative one in 14, 17 through 20. Now the time is to gather the grapes of the earth and to throw them in the winepress of God's wrath. Again, the end. And he comes and he treads the winepress and the, the blood flows. It's very graphic. The blood flows out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles. This is the end. So we come again to another vision, and here we come at the end, but we're given a little different look this time. The fifth vision is that of the seven bowls, 15 and 16. At the end of this vision, we get the famous Battle of Armageddon, which we all think of as the end. In 16, verse 17, we're told, it is done. A voice cries out from heaven, it is done. But apparently it's not done because we have a couple more chapters to go. And in 21, verse 6, we hear again, it is done. So... So we're getting it is done, and then later in 21, it's done again. Well, yes, it is, because we're coming back around at this. 
Then, 1618, again, thunders, rumblings, peals of thunder, severe earthquake, the likes of which had never seen, mountains and isles flee away, and 100-pound hailstones fall from the sky. Very apocalyptic, and we recognize the language. Here we are, back at the end again. Then, chapter 6, the sixth vision, Revelation 17 to 19, the judgment of the harlot and the beast... 19 verse 15, Christ comes with a sharp sword out of his mouth to strike down the nations and again tread the winepress of his wrath. I thought he already treaded the winepress of his wrath. Yes, you get the point. And then finally, 20 to 22, the end, the judgment of Satan, throwing into the lake of fire and the coming of the new heavens and the new earth. So I believe that as we look at this book, we've got to right at the outset, get rid of a, 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 a linear way of looking at it that somehow we're just going to march uh, straight through, but we've got to see it in these grand visions. Okay, so that's the parallel part. It's just one story, and then, we, then we're going to come back. So this angle, that angle, this angle. Okay, now what about the progressive part? The progressive part means that as we move from the first vision to the second to the third, all the way up to the seventh, that things begin to ramp up. Right? It becomes more and more intense as we move along, all right? And not only does the, the, the uh, intensity begin to ramp up, but the emphasis as we move through shifts toward the end. So can you follow that? The, the intensity ramps up vision to vision to vision to vision, and the emphasis shifts from vision to vision to vision. So by the time we get to the end, it's almost all about the very end. I'll get, let's just look at it, I'll explain because I'm getting Rachel, Rachel, Rachel McDuffie's looking at me like, I'm the beast with the seven. All right, so she's just, she's, done, she's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. All right. All right. Let's just take, for example, talking about the progressive part. Let's just take, for example, the peals of thunder. It's, this is where it's really obvious. All right. We get four times we'll hear peals of thunders, rumblings. The first one's in chapter four. We don't have a judgment image. It's just around the throne, so, which tells us that all these judgments are coming ultimately from God. But the three times it is mentioned, notice how it grows. The intensity of it builds as we move through. In 8.5, it's peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, earthquake. Okay, sounds apocalyptic. But then in 11.19... They add on. Now it's flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a hailstorm. All right. Very apocalyptic. And then by the time we get to 1618, it's thunders, rumblings, peals of thunder, severe earthquake, the likes of which were never seen before. Mountains and islands flee away, and we get hailstones that are 100 pounds each falling from the sky. Really big hailstones. All right. So you see, the, the things are moving, right? It's becoming more intense. You're feeling it. It's getting more dramatic as we move along. We could also think about this in terms of the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. In the seals, we will see that a quarter of this is destroyed, and a quarter of that is destroyed, and a quarter of this is removed. We come back around to the to the trumpets and it's no longer a quarter now it's a third of this was destroyed and a third of that was destroyed and a third of this then we come around to the bowls and there's no more quarter no more third it's everything all of this was destroyed and all of that so we feel the intensity moving as we move through the book and the emphasis shifts look at think about the the first section the first section, Revelation 1 through 3, is the introduction and letters to the churches. The emphasis of this section that we're going to begin to look at tonight 
is almost completely on the past and present. We're going to get an image of Christ, and the beauty of Christ is what he did. He's the firstborn from the dead. He freed us from our sins. Past tense, past tense, past tense. Then we're going to get the letters to the churches. Present tense, present tense, present tense, with a little bit of future. Behold, I'm coming quickly. Okay, a little bit of future, but mainly past, past, present. But then as we swing through the book, see how the emphasis shifts so that by the time we get to the last vision, it's almost all future. Satan is thrown, I mean, very little bit. Now, we'll have to talk about the millennium here. That's when we will talk about the millennium. But just a little bit of that section is going to be in the past, and now almost all of it's going to be toward the future. So that is progressive parallelism, and that would be what I would argue for as the structure of the book. I'll, I'll, I'm going to move on, but I just want to ask, do you, are there any questions, any pressing questions on that that you just think, Rach? All right, I'm not taking any more questions. Now, yes, can I say that again? Can you run through that one more time? That's why I give the handouts. All right. All right. Just let that just percolate. Huh? Well, the, the, no. Well, the, on, the, on the chart? Yeah, sure it is. In the, uh, in the hails and the lightnings and the storms and all that. All right? All right. Let that, just let that percolate. And even if, even if you need more time later to meditate on that or to think about it, at least it, what, what we need to, uh, to think about the outset is we're not reading this like a narrative. All right? we, just, we can't do it and make sense of the book. It becomes a disaster. All right. We're almost done with preliminary observations. But we have, these are important. D, interpretive approaches. How do we come at the book? And we all have to make a decision when we come at this book, not only the structure of the book, but how I'm going to read it. All right? What approach am I going to take to this book? I don't want to spend much time on these, but I will list them. And Rich was uh, asking me about this beforehand. Um, in his, his Bible, there may be a study Bible of these different approaches. And... Um, and so maybe you've heard of these. I'll just rip through them. The first is the preterist approach. Preterists are people who say this book, yes, it's a series of visions, but it's almost entirely about 70 AD. It's not about the end times at all. It's about 70 AD and the destruction of Jerusalem. That's the preterist approach, past tense preterist. Okay, so the preterist approach says this is all about the destruction of Jerusalem. A lot of like what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 24, Matthew 24, Jesus is describing the fall of Jerusalem, and people say, that's what Revelation's about. They think there's an early date to the book, it's maybe written just before 70, and that it's about the destruction of Jerusalem. I do not take this position. I, I think the, uh, the evidence is overwhelming for a later date after the fall of Jerusalem, and you really have a hard time, I think, squaring the imagery of the book with, with um, a preterist approach. The second approach is the futurist. This is what most of us are familiar with. You know, the Tim LaHaye, Hagee vision of Revelation, and that is that it's almost all about the future. And we, we kind of just spent time on that. It's really all about the last seven years of time and space. It was absolutely irrelevant, except in that, yeah, we all like to know what's going to happen, but it's really irrelevant to the uh, original audience. And I would argue that it really, I think, misses the structure of, of the book. The third approach is the historicist it's a wacky view, and, and uh, not really almost anybody holds it today, but it was big in the uh, Middle Ages and earlier church history. And that was that the events of the book cover first coming to second coming, where I would agree with them there, 
but that they actually represent actual events in church history. So let's say, you know, the coming of the beast is when the Muslims invaded Europe, you know. It's a battle of tours, uh, that kind of stuff. Uh, so they're actual events, and you kind of have to decode what event in history uh, that was. And uh, I, I don't take this approach because um, who can figure these things out? I mean, again, the book becomes irrelevant because everybody thinks they know who the beast is. If you, if you lived in Germany in the 1930s, you thought it was Hitler. If you lived in Russia, you thought it was Stalin. I don't know who you think it is today, but we'll, we're not going to go there. Um, that's his. Fourthly is the idealist approach. The idealist approach. The idealist approach says Revelation is really about timeless events, timeless principles of events, timeless problems that the church suffers with. And this, these timeless events manifest themselves between the first and second coming. So the idealist approach says it, it covers the whole period, first to second coming, and it really represents things that manifest themselves in all the ages. It's not referring to anything historical. It's just referring to sort of everything historical, just all different manifestations of beastly powers and, and all sort of manifestations of trumpet warnings and, and so forth that, that spans the course of time. So it's, it's a little bit, the idealist approach is ideal. It's, it's a little bit abstract, all right? I, I, I like that position very much. The only, the only uh, problem I have with it is it does strip the book a little bit out of its original historical context. So, you always save the best for last. So, the last one that I would argue for is the eclectic approach, sometimes called the iterist approach. And this position says that the book of Revelation spans the whole time, first to second coming. And like the idealist, these things do manifest themselves in, throughout the ages, right? So there's not necessarily one beast, right? Um, however, however, the, the uh, eclectic approach says, but there was a beast. You know, when, when John wrote to his churches, they knew who the beast was. Right? They didn't have to say, I wonder who that'll be one day. They knew the beast was wrong. It was very obvious. And the, the beast who has the seven heads, which are seven hills. You know, I mean, they, they, they knew, they got the idea of what John was saying to them. They knew who Babylon was, the harlot. Uh, they understood that it was Rome. And, and, and that the, the beastly powers of Rome were manifesting themselves against them in the form of, of the imperial power. And, and we'll get this when we start going through the letters. I mean, that is the context of the book. And uh, so I, I would argue that, yes, I like the idealist approach, but... But we have to first think what it meant to the original audience. And, and doing that then sets the trajectory for how I apply it to any other age. I can't just idealize it. That gets a little sloppy. But once I see what it would have meant to these people, what would have happened to the beast in their day, and what happened there, I can make an appropriate application to all ages. I can make an appropriate application to, to my time. Okay, so that's the eclectic approach because it, it says, yes, it is about the past. And yes, it is about the future in, in particular ways. But it's also about the whole age. What is the definition of the word? To be honest, I don't know. I just know that's what it's called. <laughs> but that's why I call it the eclectic approach. Maybe it means eclectic. Yeah, that's right. We'll look it up. Okay, we're just about ready uh, for some coffee. But I'll, I'll give you this last thing, and then we can start Revelation 1 when we come back from coffee. 
Let me give you the last. Now, this transitions us to the text. The last thing I want to give you is the setting of the book. Three things. First, the author. John never refers to himself as the apostle. So there are some people who say it is not John the apostle. Okay, I'll just tell you that. But we, we have a great deal of confidence that it is John the apostle. There's some reasons in the Greek things he says that just, you know, it's not the way he wrote in his other writings. But, uh, but we believe uh, that this is John the apostle who uh, writes this book. He's on the island of Patmos. He's been exiled. Um, he's not been killed The Romans apparently chose not to kill him, maybe because they did not want to make a martyr out of him. He was very beloved within Asia Minor. He had been ministering in the city of Ephesus, and and he gets exiled to Patmos. Patmos was like a a penal colony. It was about 40 miles off the coast of Asia Minor. And uh, so he is is left there, and it's there that he writes uh, this book. The date for the book. The big question in the date is, is it 70 or 90? 70 or 95, all right? Um, I favor 95. I think uh, most scholars do. Not that I'm a scholar, but but many scholars uh, favor uh, 95 uh, for a couple reasons. One, 70 70 has real problems. Now, now the reason people go with 70 is uh, they want to, for reasons like 666, they want to try and make that mean Nero, and Nero had just left the scene uh, they want to say it's mainly about the fall of Jerusalem, and so they try to put it right before 70 A.D., but it really has uh, some pretty significant problems. For one, we're about to read seven letters to the seven churches who are struggling. Five of them are really in trouble. And the churches were all planted like in the late 50s, mid to late 50s. And if the book is written in 70, there's just not enough time to have this great legacy and then spiral down, you know, the church of Laodicea, you are uh, Ephesus, you've left your first love. Yeah, but we've only been together 15 years. I mean, it's like, you know, we're just beginning. Uh, It just doesn't ring true. Or Laodicea, you think you are rich and they were very rich, but in 61 AD, there was a terrible earthquake that leveled the city. If it's written just a couple years later and, you know, you're written, no, they're not rich. They're actually devastated. They're destroyed. It just doesn't fit with the, um, with so many of the things in the book. So I, I would argue for 95 AD, under the reign of Emperor Domitian, uh, the, the Roman emperor, and we'll talk about uh, him in a second. So 95, I think, is realistic for some of the reasons uh, that during this time Domitian was beginning to impress upon the people the imperial cult, that is, you worship the emperor. Nero wanted to be called Lord, but it was never really enforced in the empire. But by the time you get to Domitian whose reign ends, I think, in 96, um, he is beginning to demand, you, you will offer a sacrifice to Caesar. You must do it. That's when it gets sticky. Nero was the first persecutor of the church of the Roman Empire, but his persecutions were relatively local. They were pretty much right around Rome. Just little sporadic things out and about, but mainly it was right around Rome. You know, the city burned, and, uh, and Nero blamed the Christians and, and did terrible things to them, but really just around Rome. It was the later emperors. And though we don't have a lot of historical record of Domitian uh, bringing great persecution on the church, we have other historical record that talks about churches apostatizing during that time because of fear of persecution. So Domitian's the first one that starts impressing the imperial cult, and uh, that's clearly the issue that these churches are dealing with. 
not only because the emperor is making them do it, but because of the rise of trade guilds within their cities, and we'll see that next week in the cities, tremendous economic pressure that Christians were in in these cities where the trade guild said, if you want to be part of this guild, you will worship the emperor because we need Rome's business. These cities that he writes to were known, the cities were known for building temples to the different Caesars. They wanted to impress Rome and say, hey, we're your best buddies over here. And, and the emperors loved it. And that meant the emperors did business with those trade guilds. And those trade guilds said, you will, if you want to work with us, you will worship the emperor because we're not going to take a hit economically. And so the tremendous economic pressure that was placed upon the Christians... And just think about the image in the book of Revelation. Unless you have the mark of the beast, you don't buy or sell. And I think that gives you some sense of what was, what was going on there. We don't have to look for digital chips in our wrists. I think that we get some sense from the context of the book what was going on there. Um, and we're also told by Irenaeus, the church father in the late 2nd century, that John was exiled at, to the island of Patmos under the emperor Domitian. Of course, he wasn't right there, but we'll take him at his word. And then finally, the occasion... And I kind of just shared it with you, and then we'll break here. The occasion for the book was the rise of the imperial cult, the economic pressure, pressure to comply, and the rise of persecution. Already, as we'll see in one of the letters, a man named Antipas had already been killed for the faith. And uh, the book of Revelation is saying, and more are coming. Be prepared. Be prepared. This is the great tribulation, right? We're, we're, we're all in it. And uh, more is coming, and you need to be prepared for that. That's, that's the word of the Lord to them. Be, be prepared for what is coming. Not just to you, seven churches, but to you at Dark Hill. The, the word of the Lord is to us that this is the age we live in. It's one where the, we are encouraged to compromise, to, for, for whether it be economic gain or for prosperity, political acceptance, whatever it might be. And when you don't, persecution will come to those who seek to be faithful. And uh, so that's the word of the book. So the prologue, verses 1 through 3. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants. I'm reading from the NIV, by the way. Um, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made, known it, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart, take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. All right, just draw a couple points out of that. A lot of this we've already covered, but number one, just a reminder that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, and as we said, it's not meant to be a confusion. We should see clearly something at the end of this book. Secondly, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ given by the Father. We talked about that transmission. There's a very interesting transmission, and kind of odd, actually, of the book. It's, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ given to him by the Father. So the Father gives the revelation to the Son. The Son then gives it to his angel. The angel then delivers it to John, and then John delivers it to us. All these intermediate paths. And we'll, we'll actually see that pop up again uh, later in the book and try to give some significance to it. But for our discussion, we, we can at least acknowledge the fact that this is the revelation of Christ, but it's the revelation of Christ given to him by his Father and is to be received in the Spirit. This is a Trinitarian vision. This is a Trinitarian book. Revelation of Christ given by the Father, received in the Spirit. Something uh, Mike and I were talking about last week from uh, Pastor Glenn 
down in um, uh, Severna Park. Uh, what's the name of the church, Mike, so we can just tell people it's the... the uh, Severna, Chark, uh, Severna Park Evangelical Presbyterian Church, Pastor Glenn Parkinson. Um, some of you all have listened to his series. It's a nice little, I think, seven-part sermon series. We referenced it last week. But um, one of the interesting points that he made, and I, 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 I appreciate it, and Mike mentioned it last week, was that Jesus spent three years with John. And John was a friend of Jesus. He was the beloved disciple. And, and he spent three years with him. And then when Christ died and rose, he spent 40 more days with John and the other disciples teaching them, and yet felt compelled to manifest himself to John one more time. It's just, it's just interesting, right? You, you, I mean, he had time to get this all done, but there's something he wants to, con- he wants to manifest himself to John and to the churches one more time. Uh, and that's what we're getting here after this delay. Now again, several uh, decades later, uh, maybe six decades later, he manifests himself again. And in this case, he's helping the church discern the times, that something, something's happening now. And the church needs to be geared up for this. That's what, we're, that's what we're getting. A significant time in church history is at hand, and the church needs help to discern the times. And apparently, according to Jesus, in order for them to be faithful about their calling, they need to see clearly. And so Jesus is going to, to take this occasion to actually come back and give one more bit of revelation. So it's the revelation of Christ given by the Father, received in the Spirit. And then thirdly in the prologue, we have a blessing. I mentioned this last week, that you should expect it as we study this book or as you read this book and pray for it. This book is meant to be a blessing to you. It's not, it's not meant to be some crazy riddle that, that I hope you get. <laughs> it's meant to be a blessing to you. And there will be seven blessings throughout this book, seven times where he says, blessed are you. And in, in, uh, in this book, seven is a number of completeness. Seven is a symbol, just like beasts and locusts and trees and witnesses and temples. The numbers are also symbols. They're meant to connote and tell you something. The number seven speaks of fullness and completeness. We're going to see it within this text here. Seven churches, seven spirits, right? And there will be seven blessings throughout the book. Now, did John intend that or did Christ intend that? You know, I, 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 I think that when you start plumbing the depths and Bauckham is brilliant at it on uh, uh, all different levels, you just see the hand of God in the writing of this book. So the, the point is this book is meant to give you the fullness of blessing. It's to bring complete, uh, complete blessing to you. But notice who the blessing is to. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. This book was meant to be read in church. I think that's significant. We're sort of these independent maverick Christians. It's in our DNA, I think. And yet, were you not in the church at this time, you would not have heard the book of Revelation and you would not have heard any scripture. You don't have books. You don't have Bibles sitting on your bookshelves. You go to the church, you hear the scriptures read. This was to be read in the public worship. This was to be read in the communion of saints. And I think it's so important. That even what I'm doing here, right, I'm, I'm giving you my take on Revelation for what it's worth. But you should hear my words and the words of any commentator and the words of any pastor within the communion of the saints. It's when we take one guy and we go running off with his vision of things, we end up in the weeds. The, the scriptures are to be read and to be understood within the community. 
within the body of the church. So blessed is the one who reads it. This was to be read by the pastor. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it. In this case, it's you. We'll read a lot of the book. We won't read it all in here, but, but, um, but blessed are those who hear it. The listeners receive a blessing, but notice the listeners are qualified. And this is very important for uh, your working through the book. Blessed is the one who hears it and takes to heart what is written in it. There is not a blessing for just hearing the book. Just having your ears open and listening and yawning and, or even saying, well, that's really interesting. Oh, I wonder what all this is about and that's about that. that no. The blessing is blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart. This book requires something of us. What it requires of us and what we'll find throughout it is it is a call to faithful witness. And trust me, it's a really hard call. But it's a blessed call. It's a glorious call. It's a call that comes with complete blessing. But blessed are those who hear it and who keep it. The book of Revelation is not written for amusement. It's written to have an impact on our lives and to change the way we see things. Again, not just to have a story that we say, yes, I affirm that story, but my life manifests a radically different story. I say, yes, this is what's supremely important to me, but I live like the things of the world that are supremely important to my non-believing neighbors are supremely important to me. I, I live the exact same way they do, but on paper I say, I affirm this worldview. No, that's not, that's not what the book of Revelation calls you to. It's not what the scriptures call you to. It's not what the king of kings calls you to or me to. And yet we're always in danger of doing that. Blessed are those who hear this book and who keep it. And then fourthly in the prologue, because the time is near. Now here's where bing, 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 lights start going off. What do you mean the time is near? What time is near? Some take this, well, this is why it had to be written about Jerusalem, because obviously the second coming was not near, so it had to be about the fall of Jerusalem. But uh, as I said, I, I do not affirm that. What time is near, John? And I think his answer would be the events of this book. No, the events of the book. What, what, this whole pattern that we're talking about in this book is near. We hear the time is near, we think second coming. Our minds just go right there, like the time is near for the second coming. But, that's, but why would we think that? That's not, again, John's talking about something bigger than that. The second coming is part of it. But the time that is near is all the things he's going to talk about. I mean, there's tribulation. These churches are going to suffer, and they're going to suffer soon. The time is near. The time is now to get really serious about this. The time is now to, to, to make a decision to say, in the great conflict of the kingdoms, what side am I on? The time is near. So make a decision. Tribulation is coming. The kingdom is coming. And because the end has broken into time, yes, even the second coming is near. We should long for it. We should expect it. The time is near in general, not, excuse me, not just the second coming is near. Okay, so that's the prologue. Secondly, the greeting. Here we have the introduction of a letter in verse 4. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you, from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Here we have our greeting. It's a typical letter. We recognize it from Paul's letters, right? Greet grace and peace to you. We have an introduction to the seven churches, 
as we said, the number seven is significant. And, and so here, right off the bat, we, if we asked, who is this book to? We could answer two ways. We'd say, well, it's to the seven churches, Smyrna and Ephesus and Sardis and Thyatira and Pergamum and Laodicea. It's, it's to those seven churches. But because John is telling us it's to the seven churches, we hear more, and rightly so. That is, it's not just to these seven churches. It is to these seven churches and then out through them to all the churches, the seven churches, the complete church. Again, we're not breaking code here. We're just understanding the symbols of what John intends in the number seven. And if you think, uh, Bill, where, now where you get, you're just assuming that the number of, well, again, then we're, you know, it's not a, a big jump here if you read the book and see how many times seven comes up. John uses these numbers intentionally and in a, a, multi, in a multiple, uh, multiple of ways, John uses the number seven. Seven is to signify completeness and fullness. And so this letter is to the whole church, but in particular to these particular seven that are about to be mentioned. So we have the greeting and then we get or the introduction. Then we have this uh, Trinitarian greeting that we kind of referenced uh, last week. So let's look at it again in a little bit of detail this time. Grace and peace to you from. Now, now in the other letters we see, you know, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Usually we get that from Paul and so forth. Now we get a Trinitarian way, and we don't just get it that simple. Typical revelation, it just it breaks it open. It extends it out for us to look at and to meditate on. Grace and peace to you from. Now here's the Father. And the name that's given to him is from him who is and who was and who is to come. Now here, what John is doing is giving us the divine name from Exodus chapter 3. Right? It's the to be. There are to be verbs in here, right? So when, when Moses in Exodus 3 is there at the burning bush and God says, Moses, come over here and, and uh, take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. And Moses, I want you to go uh, to Egypt and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And he says, well, who shall I say send me? And he says, I am. You tell them I am that I am sent you, or I will be what I will be sent you. Now here, John is cracking this open, or Jesus, as he reveals it to him, is cracking that I am open and now splitting it out. Not just I am, but the God who is, I am, and who was, right? Splitting it over time. This is the sovereign God, the one who is transcendent over time, all the time of this vision. There is nothing in this vision that he's not sovereign over. Later, we're going to be told he's the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. The point is, I'm sovereign over the whole. The God who is and the God who was. But very interesting here. It's a to be verb, who is. A to-be verb, who was. And then you would expect a third to-be verb. And the God who will be. But you don't get that. Instead, you get the God who was, and the God who is, and then the God who is to come. It's not a to-be verb. Now what's going on there? John changes what we would expect, and instead of saying the God who will be, it's the God who is to come. And I mentioned, if you remember back on the on this uh, sheet I gave you here about the progressive parallelism, when we get to chapter 11, three times before that, we get the God who is and was and is to come. That, that name, the name we just read, that's the first time it'll happen two more times. Then all of a sudden in chapter 11, the name changes. 
Just the God who is and who was, period. No more to come. The coming here is God's coming in judgment to deliver his people. And what's amazing about this is God weaves his coming to deliver his people right into his name. That's the God I am. Who am I? I am the God who is. And I'm the God who was. And I'm the God who will deliver my people. That's my name. Woven right into the name. So once he comes, we don't need it anymore. I'm the God who is and the God who was. Now, if you think about it, and I just, I take a moment to, to dig into this just for a second, because in Exodus chapter 3, if we go back, is there any, is there any basis for this in Exodus chapter 3? Well, what's fascinating about Exodus 3 is when, and I love this about the name of, of God, in Exodus chapter 3, when Moses says, who shall I say sent me? Just listen to what, how the Lord reveals himself to Moses and to us. And Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me, and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? That's verse 13 of chapter 3. God said to Moses, I am who I am. That is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. We all know that. I'm not revealing anything to you. You you know that's the name. But maybe what we overlook is what comes next. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. What is the name of the Lord? I am. I'm the eternal one. But that's not the only name he sends them back with. He doesn't just say, give them this this nebulous name that they're not going to understand. I'm just, I'm the self-existent being. Okay. But he doesn't just leave them with that awesome but abstract name. He sends them back and says, no, you know what? Here's a little bit more. Tell them this. You know what my name is? I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He has sent me to you. This is my name. He takes Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and lifts them right up into the divine name, the eternally satisfied God who doesn't need, we're dirt. He reaches down into the dirt and makes you. He reaches down into the dirt and makes Abraham. Abraham's a liar. Abraham's an adulterer. Right? Jacob's a swindler. But they're his people. And he says, you know what my name is? My name is their God. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he has sent me to you. That's his name. He's the one who comes to deliver his people. The very name of God is he hears the cry of his people and they're his people and he comes to deliver them. It's amazing. It's awesome. And so in Revelation, the name is, I am he who was and who is and who is to come. I'm coming to deliver you from the beast. I'm coming to deliver you from the plagues. I'm coming to deliver you from the dragon. I'm coming to deliver you from the harlot. That's my name. That's what I do. So the name of God. Secondly, the spirits. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits before his throne. Now, this image of seven spirits throws people off. Benny Hinn, actually. I don't know if you you remember Benny Hinn. Benny Hinn's still around, is he so? Uh, if you love Benny Hinn, I'm sorry, but uh, I'm sorry, that was it. but he, he's the one who said that the Trinity is actually nine. There's nine members of the Trinity because you have seven spirits 
and then you have the Father and the Son. All right? That's how he read this passage. So that I will just say at the outset, that is not a good interpretation of this passage. Seven is the number of fullness, all right? What John sees when he sees the seven spirits and when he hears the seven spirits is the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And this image isn't just plucked out of the sky. It's actually taken from Zechariah chapter 4. We're not going to go back and and look at that, but it's taken from Zechariah chapter 4 where uh, Zechariah gets an image of the temple. And in the temple is a lampstand with seven lights burning on it. And Zechariah says, what am I to make of this? And he says, I'm going to restore my temple and I'm not going to do it by might or power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. The spirit is what you see. In the seven lands. I mean, so, so the image, and that's in the throne, in the temple before the throne. So John isn't just, again, saying, let me think what would be a neat idea to think of the spirits. No, he, he's, he's calling back on Old Testament imagery, and he says the seven spirits, uh, uh, they're light before the, before the throne of God. Then thirdly, the Son, verses 5 and 6, and from Jesus Christ, and now we're going to launch into a wonderful vision of Jesus here first uh, in, in word and then, and then in vision. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. John gives us a glimpse here of the gospel. That's really what we get. He praises the Lord and acknowledges the peace of the Lord uh, in the gospel. Notice the three things that are described here. First, the son is the faithful witness. The word witness, as I mentioned last week, is the word martyrion, which means martyr. Jesus is the one who is the faithful witness. He perfectly witnessed, testified as to who God is. If you want to know who God is, you don't look anywhere else but Jesus Christ. As I told you last week, there's no getting behind Jesus to God. You say, yeah, but, yeah, but Jesus, was, Jesus wept, and, and Jesus was hungry, and Jesus bled and died on a cross, and, and that's interesting, but, but I, I, let me see God. Like Philip said, just show us the Father. That's enough for us. And Jesus said, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. There's no getting to the Father behind. I, you looking at, you're looking at him. When you look at me, I'm the perfect representation of the Father. I told my church just the other day, I said, we get this all backwards in the Bible. When we look at Jesus, we think... We think, all right, let's go into the New Testament and let's see if we can find signs of divinity in Jesus. We know what God is. Let's go and now look in the, in the New Testament and see if we can see signs of it in the life of Jesus. Oh, hey, he did miracles. Boom, there it is. There's an evidence that he's God. And, and, uh, and oh, he, he, he knew what somebody was thinking. That's an evidence that he's divine. And that is backwards. It's not, I know what God is, now let me see, some, let me see if I can find him in Jesus. <laughs> no, you don't know what God is. That's why Jesus is here. It's not, I know what God is, let me see him in Jesus. It's, let me look at Jesus so I can know what God is. I study and look at Jesus because he is the radiance of God's glory. I look at Jesus because he is the image of the invisible God. I thought I knew what God was like, but I had no idea. I had no idea that my God is the God who gets his hands dirty and comes down into our world and touches lepers and spends time with harlots and and who goes to a cross and who weeps at the grave of his friend. I I didn't know. I just thought God was this, this abstract being, this supreme power who is unmoved by the problems of our age. And so we look for, where can I see the power of God in Jesus? No, that's wrong. Jesus is the perfect witness the perfect testimony as to what God is really like. And he gave his life for it. 
He's the perfect martyr. Faithful to the end. He's the faithful witness. Next, we're told he's the firstborn from the dead. So think in the, think in the context of the gospel. He's the faithful martyr. He dies. But then he's the firstborn from the dead. He's raised up to new life. And not just for himself. He's the firstborn of the dead. Little sign of hope for the readers of this Bible, many of whom, of this, of this book, many of whom will die. They will become faithful witnesses. They will be martyrs. And then they're to look at the one, grace and peace to you, brother. Peace to you in the midst of complete tumult. When you are martyred, know that the one who grants you peace is the one who was also martyred, but who is the firstborn from the dead, and he will raise you up. He's the first of many brothers. And then thirdly, think, death, resurrection, ascension. Then thirdly, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. The ascension, right? He ascends to the right hand of the Father and says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Jesus, we're told here, the one who gives you grace and peace is the one who is king of kings and lord of lords, even over Domitian, the Roman emperor, the beast, and all the beasts of all the ages that scare the living daylights out of you. Jesus is king and ruler over all authorities, from Domitian to Washington, D.C., and every power in between, be they beastly or not. Jesus is Lord of all. He's the ruler, king over the rulers of all the earth. The book of Revelation, right from the beginning, asks you, what vision do you believe? Do you believe that? Right? It's given to these readers to say, do you believe that in the face of the persecuting power of Emperor Domitian or any other emperor? Do you believe that? Later in the book, we're going to hear people cry out, oh my goodness, who can make war against the beast? The beast looks so vicious and so powerful and he's just crushing the church. And they cry out, who can make war against the beast? This was spoken on the side of the beast, by the way, in arrogance. Who can make war against the beast? And right at the beginning, we're told who? The king of kings. The one who's ruler over all the beasts of the age. Jesus Christ, right from the beginning, is re-narrating the story for you. Because it looks like Domitian is really in charge and you have no power. And sometimes you feel that in our own age, right? You look at things going on in D.C. and you're like, I feel absolutely powerless. I'm watching things fall apart and I have no power. I can't tell you. I have to shut the radio off. I can't listen. I'm ready to drive off a cliff. I listen to some of this stuff. I can't listen to it because I'm powerless. And then I say, well, what vision are you... <laughs> What vision are you living? What story do you really believe? The book of Revelation says, you're powerless? Your king is the king of Your king is the ruler over all the kings of the earth. You're not powerless, but see, there you go. You see, you, I check off the box. I believe this story. And then I live, and I live this story. And, the, and Jesus is re-narrating the story, and it's really explosive. It's going to get you killed. This story gets you killed. The story of the gospel. Because you start going around saying, he's the king of kings. When John wrote this, right, Kevin Sherritt said this once in one of his writings, he said, people think the book of Revelation is given to be secretive so the emperors can't understand what they're saying. Baloney, right at the outset. That's enough right there to get you killed. And it does get them killed. And it gets Christians killed throughout all the ages when they proclaim that kind of authority of their king. Because the kings of the earth don't want to hear it. John then breaks out in a doxology. After this wonderful grace and peace, now he gives praise to 
Christ. To him who loves us and who has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve God and his Father. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. John can't contain himself. He just breaks into praise for all of God's works towards us. And what are they? He loves us. Notice he doesn't say he loved us. He loves us. John puts it in the present. Continual in the Greek. It is a continual action. John just can't help it. He just praises him. He's the one who loves us. He loved us yesterday and he loves us today. And when it looks like he's absent from you, when the beast is trampling you, you need to believe he loves you. The world hates you, but he loves you. And he not only loves us, but he freed us from our sins by his blood. That is to say, the death he died, and we know this, but the death we died was not mere martyrdom. Yes, he's the faithful martyr, but his death is not mere martyrdom. It was conquest. His death was not defeat and weakness and, oh man, but he really helped the cause by it. No! No, by his death, he freed us. It's Exodus language. The hearers, uh, think about JB, what would, the, what would the hearers hear? They'd hear Exodus. He freed us. That was the story they believed they were living. He freed us from our sins by his blood. His death was not defeat. It wasn't martyrdom. It was conquest. And just as in the Exodus... The Israelites were freed from their enslavement by the blood of the Passover lamb. So John is saying, it's true for us too. There's a greater Passover and there's a greater exodus. There's a greater Pharaoh. There's a greater deliverance and it's happening right now. He freed us from our sins by his blood and all his enemies will fall just like Pharaoh fell. He just links us right into that story. And he says, does this story sound familiar to you? That's the story you need to understand that we're in. And Pharaoh was bad, and it was rough, and he didn't just relent. We had to go through ten plagues. It was going to be really hard. It was going to be hard labor. But in the end, the horse and the rider were washed up on the shore, Exodus 15. And then thirdly, he made us to be kings and priests to our God. Again, it's a call to action. He didn't just free you from your sins. He freed you from your sins in order to make you something. He makes you kings and priests. That is, you and I were saved... A lot of times we just end it there. We say, are you saved? Yes, I'm saved. Are you saved? Yes, we're saved. But for the scripture, it's saved for something. You were saved to be something. You were saved to serve. You were saved to be kings and priests. Remember after the Exodus, let, or, or after the, the Passover, let my people go that they might serve me in the wilderness. You're saved to serve and here to represent Christ, to be kings like he was a king and to be priests like he was a priest. Okay, I know we're moving here, but I got, what do I got? I got 12 minutes cooking along. (laughs) Next, prophetic oracle. Do I have that up there? Yes, I do. Greeting and John's prophetic oracle, verse 7. John now alludes to the Old Testament in this prophetic oracle. Look, now he's quoting the Old Testament here. This This is Daniel 7 and Zechariah 12. And I'll actually read these for you. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. A prophetic oracle. Now, I said this is, a, this is the bringing together of two texts. First, this is Daniel 7, verse 13. The first half of this is Daniel 7, 13. Now, to understand this, again, it's linked to the Old Testament, so we've got to understand the Old Testament context a little bit. Daniel 7. Daniel has just gotten a vision of a terrible beast. 
Right? We'll spend time with this beast. It's gonna, he's, it's important. Beast. Okay? And in this beast, it's a beast that makes up four kingdoms. With Nebuchadnezzar at the top, the Babylonian kingdom, and then working down to the, the, uh, the, the Persian kingdom, the chest of silver, and then down to the waist of, of, of bronze, that is the, the Greeks. And if you're saying, what, what the heck are you talking about? That's okay. You can read it. Daniel gets a vision of the successive kingdoms that are to come. Nebuchadnezzar gets a vision, and Daniel is, is interpreting it and so forth. And it's a vision of successive kingdoms that are to come. It's a statue of a beast. The head of the beast is gold. And he says, Nebuchadnezzar, that's you. The Babylonian kingdom is a kingdom of gold. But then there will come a kingdom lesser than you. It's the kingdom of the Persians. And they represent the silver chest of this beast. It's made of these four metals. And then the midsection is bronze, representing the next kingdom that will come, which is the Greeks and Alexander the Great. And then the legs are legs of iron, the strongest of all the metals. And they will crush people. Of course, that's Rome. It's very interesting that, that then John brings up the image of the beast in Revelation during the time of Rome, right? There's significance to this image, but regardless. And then the feet of this beast are mixed. They're iron and clay. It's an, it's an amazing beast. It's a tremendous statue, but its feet are weak. Its feet are made of iron and clay. They don't mix. And a stone is going to come out of a mountain. A stone's going to come. A stone that's not cut by human hands. And it's going to crush the statue of the beast. And then that stone is going to turn into a great mountain. And everybody will worship it. <laughs> and and we, you, know, you have to make sense of this. But we, we in light of Christ, we, we can. And, and Revelation is going to help us here. But so, so he just gets this vision of this terrible beast. And the beast is doing horrible things. And it's crushing. And it's, 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 it's this carnage everywhere. He's got ribs sticking out of his mouth and blood everywhere. It's a, it's a horrible beast. And as, the, as he sees this image go on, we then come... To, uh, to the end of that vision. Verse 9, And I looked, thrones were set in place. The Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. His hair of his head was white as wool. We're going to hear that in a minute. His throne was a flaming fire. Its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousands times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were open. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. And I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the throne into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. Now here. In my vision at night I looked and before me was one like a son of man coming in the clouds of heaven. And he approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. And he was given authority and glory, sovereign power. All peoples and nations and men of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. This is what John is referencing in his image in Revelation 1. Look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Now, when we hear in Revelation uh, 1, 7, uh, look, he is coming with the clouds, we all read that as he's coming toward us. He's coming back again. Again, second coming. And don't get me wrong, there, there are... It is meant to draw our minds there. But in Daniel, that's not what's happening. In Daniel, the Son of Man is coming. But where is he coming? Where am I? 
In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven, and he approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He's ascending. He's ascending to the Father. He's ascending to the Ancient of Days. He's coming to his throne. He's being seated at the right hand of the Father and being vested with all power and authority over all the nations and all the tribes. He's not coming down. He's actually coming to the Father in this vision. And I think what John is doing in in this vision, when he says, Behold, behold, he is coming with the clouds. Yeah, I think our mind is to be drawn to the day he will come like he went. We're told that. And I think our minds are meant to go to the second coming. But John is giving us something richer than just he's coming. What he's saying is, behold, look. Can you see where he is, your king? He is seated with the ancient of days. He is there at the right hand of the Father, vested with all authority and power and glory over all the tribes of the earth. Now, you've got to believe that because it doesn't look like it when you look at Rome. And it doesn't look like it when you look at America. But look, he's coming. He's There he is, ascending to the Ancient of Days. And then we're given this wonderful, optimistic, encouraging word at the end of this. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. All the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. Now, this is taken from Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. Sounds like they're going to mourn because of me. Even those who pierced him will weep and mourn. But notice the context of Zechariah is encouraging. The day is going to come when I'm going to pour out on the house of David grace. And what's that grace going to look like? And they will look on me, the one they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. And they will grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for for, for a firstborn son. So what's John doing pulling these two texts together for us. He's saying, look, do you see where he is? Believe it. He's seated with the Father in glory, with all power and dominion. And you know what's going to happen? You know what the result of this is going to be? Do you know where this book ends? This book ends with the nations falling before him, mourning over their sin and rebellion, and crying out to him for mercy. So that what we're going to hear are people of every race and every tribe and every tongue gathered around the Lamb singing his praises. In this little prophetic oracle, John is pointing us and giving us the way we're to think about the rest of this book. Here's what you should look forward to. Here's the way you should see things as they're coming about. Now, five minutes I got here. Maybe I should ask if you all have any questions because I felt guilty last week about not asking if you have any questions. Do you have any questions or... Let's see, what do I want to do here? Eh. Do you have any questions? Because next, I really did want to get through this, but this stuff is so rich, and this is my problem. It, it, this stuff is so wonderful and rich, and if you, if you meditate upon it and chew on it, it's so encouraging. Now, now, granted, that takes a little work right there, that Daniel 7, Zechariah 12 stuff. It takes a little work, but, but if we spend a little time reflecting on it, it's, just, it's so encouraging to say, yes, the rest of this book is going to be some scary stuff, but let this be what guides you as we move through. Scarlett? Oh, of the, the lamps? Zechariah 4. 
Ze- Zechariah chapter 4. What we're, what, we're about to, what we're about to enter into here, and I got three minutes. Um, what we're about to enter into here is now John's vision and his commission. And, and here John now takes, after this wonderful praise, God speaks, and by the way, in verse 8, it's only one of only two times God the Father speaks in the book of Revelation. It will be here, and at the very end of the book, I am the Alpha, the Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come. There we have that again, the Almighty. And I'll just introduce the vision with this. I, John, your brother and companion in suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word and testimony of Jesus. I'll introduce the vision with just this. John introduces himself in this book not as the apostle. He pulls no rank in this book. But notice how he introduces himself. I, John, your brother. And not just your brother, right? He's the apostle. But he says, I, John, your brother. And not just brother, but your companion. I'm in this with you. Because I'm exiled right now. I'm I'm, I'm on this penal colony of Patmos, right? Dying away out here. Why? Why? Because of faithful witness. Because of the testimony of Jesus Christ, I'm suffering too. I'm your brother. I'm your partner in this. He comes right alongside them. And he puts his writing in the past tense. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island. He puts himself in the time period of the reader. He's identifying with the reader here. And how is he our brother and companion? He's our companion in suffering. Tribulation. But not just suffering and tribulation. He is. But also the kingdom. And here we have this wonderful balance between suffering, the the hard parts of the book of Revelation, but the glorious parts of the book of Revelation. I'm your partner in tribulation, but also in the kingdom. We're about something here. This isn't just suffering and grit your teeth and I'm there with you, man, and at least we're all suffering together. No, no, no. This is glorious suffering. This is triumphant suffering. This is the suffering like Christ suffered. The faithful martyr who then was raised from the dead and is now ruler over the ruler, the kings of the nations. Right? This is conquest suffering. This is kingdom Suffering, And we're partners in this. We're companions. And what does it require? We're companions in suffering and in kingdom and in the patient endurance. That's what the book calls us to. And John says, that's what we got to be about. Patient endurance. Don't give up. Don't fall apart when the beast looks really ugly. Don't compromise when the harlot looks really gorgeous. Be faithful. Endure the hardships patiently. How long, O Lord? How long? Just a little longer. Patient endurance in suffering and in kingship. For these are ours in Jesus. That's our lot. Now, we've got to believe this as Americans who have it really good. We like the kingdom part. Don't quite get the suffering part because we haven't experienced it a lot. But like I said, if you lived in Syria right now, you know, if you lived in Nigeria or Egypt or North Korea, man, you would just you'd cling to this. You would hear John say, I'm your companion. I'm your brother in the suffering that's ours in Christ. And you'd weep. You'd weep. And you'd be excited to read the book and to get John's vision. So I hope to get through chapter one. We didn't do it. I hope this does not bode 
terribly for the way we're going to go through the rest of the book. But we're going to, next week, read, read the rest of the vision. The thing I sent out, I, I sent out a little email. Hopefully, if, if we didn't get your emails, get it, because I'll, I'll send something out during the week just to challenge you. And uh, the thing I asked this week was, have we so domesticated our understanding of Jesus that the Jesus John reveals to us now, that we didn't cover, um, is not the Jesus we would recognize. Do you recognize the Jesus that is in the rest of this book? It's a wild-looking Jesus. Because we see Jesus with the lamb around his neck. You know that picture? We all grew up with that picture in Sunday school, the lamb around the neck, meek and mild. Read the Jesus that John meets, because when he sees this Jesus, he falls down dead. And Jesus has to raise him up. So, so read that, think about it, and then what, so what we'll do next week is the vision, and then we'll try and get into a couple of the letters. If you have any questions, stick around. I'm happy to stick around and, and answer them and uh, wrestle through them. Let me, let me close this in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your grace and kindness to us. For Father, you in your very name have taken a relationship with us You've taken us into your very being by uniting us to your Son. You are the God who loves us and the God who desires to deliver us and who will deliver us. You're the one who reigns on high. Oh, Father, we give you praise for this majestic vision that even now we've just begun to taste and just begun to see. Give us ears to hear it. Give us eyes that see it. Give us hearts that embrace it and that leap for joy when we meditate upon the fact that our Lord Jesus Christ, even now, is King of kings and Lord of lords. And let it keep us faithful, O Father, to be faithful witnesses until the very end. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a production of the Dwark Hill Study Center. All our lectures and classes are available for free streaming or for purchase on CD and download at dwarkhill.org. Please visit our website to receive more information regarding the study center and upcoming events, and to view articles and blogs from our contributors. <laughs>